Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. I'm pleased to say that joining me on this episode is an artist and painter. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, W.S. Cranmore. Hi, Scott. Hello. How are you, Stu? I'm really good. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Cool. It's great to have you. Um, you are our first transatlantic guest as well, because you are in, where are you? You're the great state of Oregon, I think, aren't you? The great state of Oregon, yep, out on the West Coast, uh, just outside of Portland, actually, uh, is where I call home nowadays. Uh, it's kind of gray and rainy today, but uh, it's still very much a beautiful place. So Yeah, cool. Well, I can see some of your artwork behind you there as well, and you count among your fans a certain Elvis Costello, and we'll talk about that shortly. But of course, in turn, you're a big fan of his music. Where Absolutely. and when did yeah, where and when did you first connect with Elvis's music? Uh, let me see here. I, I actually thought about this because I knew you were going to be asking that question. Um, I think the first time, I, and I actually had to Google this to make sure that I had the name right, but the first time I was probably in, I'm going to say 81 or 82 maybe, there was a movie that came out called Americathon. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, but no. He uh, Elvis Costello had two songs in that movie, uh, Chelsea and uh, Crawling to the USA. And I remember that, even though in 81, I would have been like, uh, I'm going to say like 14 years old. But I remember that because my friends and I, um, there was a, one of us was older, about five years older than us. And thankfully, he was getting into music that we had never heard of where we're from. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan, which is just north of Detroit. Um, where I grew up, it was nothing but cornfields, um, you know, forests things like that. And at that time, there was no internet. There was no cell phones. There was nothing like that. So what you heard on FM radio is, you just took that for granted, is that's what there is for music. But uh, he was getting into a lot of great music, and one of them was Elvis Costello. And I, I remember the name, and I remember one evening, he said there's a movie coming on, and Costello's got two songs in it. And uh, we were having fun, and he is, like, yelling at us to be quiet. The songs are going to be coming on. Be quiet. <laughs> and I don't even remember the movie, and I don't remember the songs coming on, but I do remember that incident, first time I ever heard about Elvis Costello. So it was in the back of my mind as I got older. Um, you know, like I said, hearing this new music for the first time, it just opened up a whole new world to me. Uh, not to sound like Disney or anything, but it just, all of this music that I thought never existed was now there. And Costello struck a note with me because when I saw pictures of him, images of him, he didn't look like rock stars. He didn't, you know, the half button shirt, uh, the gold chains and, yeah. you know, everything like that. He, he looked like a, very much an average Joe. And he had these big spectacles on um, and I could relate to that. And so I immediately was attracted to him and at that point, I'm going to say that's probably like in the early 80s and well, 83, I think the very first song that I ever heard from him 
was a Wednesday week, I want to say, because okay. we we came home and uh, the friend I was talking about, he was playing some Elvis Costello when we walked into the house. That's the song that was on. And uh, I just immediately zoned in on the words, the lyrics, uh, his image. It just meant something to me. It showed me that you don't need to be a rock star uh, to do what you want to do. Um, that the way I look is okay because this is a person who looks exactly like that. So I think that's probably the first time. And it was from there, I just started uh, moving forward with the music, trying to find out as much as I could. And like I said, being in an era where you didn't have the internet to look up things, uh, I was actually quite isolated. So I, I, you know, tried to get magazines, music magazines that would have anything in it, not only for Costello, but for other bands that I was hearing at the time as well. But um, I tried to get what I could, where I could. And uh, it was just it was just opening up a lot for me. And I, I think it was all because of that first incident with Americathon and uh, my friend, you know, showing us the music that's out there. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's more than the Eagles. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because all of my previous guests have been British or Irish. So they've become familiar with him through a lot of the same channels, the same TV programs, the same radio shows, the music papers. As you say, you've then got to navigate the American coverage of him. Where did he sit culturally on the landscape over there at that time? Um, at that time, nobody had ever heard of him. Um, right. And there was a lot of the uh, European bands, uh, British bands in particular. At that time, there was no radio stations that were playing this kind of music. Um, we had one radio station where I grew up and they played nothing but like uh, the Eagles, Billy Joel, Journey, um, nothing against those bands, but that's all you heard. Hmm. So when my friend was coming home and he had Elvis Costello and the Damned, Bauhaus, a bunch of other bands, it was just unlike anything that we had ever heard. And the album covers were just, I mean, you can stare at the album covers forever. I remember yeah. one in particular, I know we're talking about Elvis right now, but I remember the first Generation X album where they're all standing there with their hair spiked, you know, looking like a gang. And I just remember staring at that cover forever because the last song that I heard was, um, you know, a Billy Joel song and <laughs> it was nothing like this. So yeah. I was intrigued. I was intrigued, but yeah, nobody was playing that kind of music. So we really had to seek it out. Uh, luckily, uh, as the years went by, we started getting a, a record store in the area uh, called Wide Earp Records and Tapes. And uh, he started carrying a lot of that music. And uh, it was kind of like our fix, I would say, to getting into that type of music. So. Yeah. And I guess one of his big network TV appearances around that time in the early 80s would have been when he went on the Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, which I've watched back loads of times on YouTube. And you can see that Snyder's slightly apprehensive going in, into the interview because I think he'd had an experience with John Lydon not so long before. And obviously Elvis, having been on Saturday Night Live and one or two other things, would have built up a certain reputation. But you watch that back and he's all charm, you know, all yeah. sort of English gentleman while he's on there with a really nice sense of humour. Um, and that would have been interesting if that was some people's first introduction to Elvis. It probably was. I, I have to say, I, I saw that segment uh, a couple of years ago. The, gr the great thing about the internet is what you might have missed because you were too young or, you know, you can yeah. now Google it or look it up and watch it now. But um, I think probably... A lot of people who would have watched that segment probably would have 
not known what to make of that. Um, because like I said, uh, we, we, we listen to a lot of American bands over here uh, to, you know, the, it's about the only way to put it is we like our American bands at that time, I'm going to say, um, especially where I grew up, uh, it was very rural. And um, if somebody who came on looking like Elvis and uh, speaking like Elvis was speaking, I, I think some people probably would have embraced it. Some people probably would have um, not embraced it so much. And then others probably would have been indifferent. But uh, I think um, it probably took a few more years after that for it to seep into all areas of the states here. So of course, in the big cities, you know, he was he was already making a name for himself, but we weren't quite big city where I was at at the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, just on that point from where you are, geography-wise, have you got to see Elvis much when he's toured America? Does he do the areas around you? So now that I'm living in Portland, I've seen him twice out here. Uh, I saw him, I want to say, four times in Michigan, uh, in Detroit, in Ann Arbor. Um, first show I ever saw was on the Mighty Like a Rose tour. And um, we saw him at the Fox Theater in Detroit. I will never forget that show because uh, still at that time, you, you didn't get to see a lot of pictures. Uh, MTV was starting to become big at the time, but some areas still didn't even have M MTV yet. But I remember him coming out on stage and he's wearing a big hat, big black shades. He's got a big beard. And I just remember clapping. And when he walked out, I stopped clapping and I'm like, wait a minute. Is that Elvis? <laughs> I mean, to, to us, it was like a, a big shock because that was not the, the previous pictures we had seen, you know. But, uh, I mean, it was a great show, though. But I do remember him standing at the microphone most of the time. Didn't move around a whole lot in that show. Um, but the music was outstanding. It, I mean, by the second verse of the, the, the opening uh, song, we were already hooked. It was fantastic. And, the, the atmosphere was electric. It was sold out and everybody was there to see Elvis. It was a, a great experience and I'm glad that that was my first show. So, yeah, but cool. then we saw him, uh, saw him here in Portland as well. Um, I don't remember if he was promoting a particular album, but I did see the Steve uh, Naive and him, just a piano singer. That was a great show, um, very much not also not what I was expecting from an Elvis Costello show. Now I'm, I'm used to it, to not knowing what to expect when you go see him. But uh, we, we did catch him on the Delivery Man tour as well. And that oh, was, nice. I think that might've been my favorite show. Um, okay. I know, I, I know uh, some people will probably debate that, but it just, it just had a, a presence and I, it was in a smaller venue and there was not one person there that was just there to hang out with their friends. Everybody was there to see Elvis. And when he would start a song, everybody was dead silent while he, he performed. It was just unbelievable. And I was probably, I'm going to say, less than 10 feet away from him <laughs> watching the entire show. So that was a really fun experience. So, Well, let's start going through some of the songs that you've picked out for us for our playlist. And I know from your Twitter messages that you've enjoyed hearing what other guests have picked in previous episodes. Um, yeah. As with all of them, I've asked you to pick five Elvis songs for the playlist. Each one comes from a different decade, from the 70s through to 2010 onwards. I am starting to function in the usual way. Everything is so provocative. 
1970s, you chose Big Boys from Armed Forces, released in January 1979. Yes, exactly. And there's, uh, I, I had a difficult time choosing. I, I, obviously, like all of your guests that have been on here, I had all kinds of songs and trying to narrow it down one for each era is just, it's such a challenge. It really is. But I had to pick Big Boys, not only because I love the song, but there's a, a reason for it. As, as I mentioned, growing up in a rural area, when you start getting older and you realize listening to these new bands and this new music, you realize that there's more to the world than where you're at. And so as a result, I started getting restless and I wanted to see more than just the cornfields and the forests and things like that. So I started thinking and I started, I came to the realization, you know, I, I can go wherever I want to go. I'm, I'm older now. I can take off. There's nothing holding me back except for money, <laughs> that was holding yeah. back. <laughs> but uh, Big Boys, it, it starts off, I'm starting to function in the usual way. Everything is so provocative, very, very temporary. I shall walk out of this place. And to me, because it was just him singing, you know, over, over the accompaniment right there, it almost sounded like he was, he was talking to me that, you know, here's the time, it's time to get going. And even though, you know, the song is obviously about a relationship, it, to me, it just said, let's, let's go see what else is out there. And it was not too long after that, that I uprooted from Michigan and moved to the other side of the country to see what was going on. I've moved several times since. And I think it, that that was one of the things that was, I wouldn't say it's the catalyst, but it's definitely one of the things that, you know, said, you don't have to wait here. You don't have to live here if you don't want to. You can go see what else is out there. And so every time I hear that, I think of that move. And when he says, you try so hard to be like the big boys, to me, you know, that, that was kind of saying, you can go, you're, you're one of the big boys now. Get out there and, and see what's going on. And, you know, there are a lot of people will listen to the words of the song and, and they're like, well, I don't know how he got that out of what Elvis is actually saying. But, you know, like I said, when you didn't know what the songs were about, you could only guess. You couldn't look, I, I couldn't go look up the lyrics, you know. They, they kind of uh, become a little more personal to you. You can relate to specific lines or specific phrases a little bit more. And um, that's exactly what I did for a song like that. And nowadays, I mean, even now I, I'm settled. I'm, I'm here in Oregon and I have a family. I've, I've got daughters. I've got a great career in art. Um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I took those steps and I saw what I saw. I would like, love to have seen more of the world than I did, but I'm, I'm happy with, uh, with what happened. So, and that song is, I think, the start of it. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how just hearing the right song or the right lyric in a song at a particular moment can have such a profound impact on your life. And as you say, literally take you in another direction. Absolutely. My family weren't too happy about the fact that I came to them uh, out of the blue and said, I'm moving to Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I was 17 at the time. And so all of them had a look of a uh, shock on their face. <laughs> uh, my dad, 
I, I love my dad and everything, but, you know, sometimes he couldn't understand some of the decisions I was making and uh, some of the directions that I was going in. Um, and when I came home, you know, having heard this new music and now I've got spiky hair, I'm wearing a leather jacket and everything. <laughs> and then I say, uh, I'm moving to Phoenix. You know, I can understand being a father now myself, I can understand what he must have been thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but it, it, it all turned out for the best. And I'm, I'm glad that it did. Yeah. And as you say, Elvis writes it from a position of talking about relationships. He said of his state of mind, whispered persuasions, ultimatums and the closing time seductions passed for an emotional life. I was looking to discourage admiration and flirting with a sort of controlled fall from grace. And that line that you mentioned about everything is so provocative, that could almost be his mission statement at that point in his career, couldn't it? You know, we talked about Saturday Night Live a few moments yeah. ago. It's like he's here to disrupt things, isn't he, at that point? Yep. Uh, I think uh, it, I, actually you put that very well. I think that's exactly his mission statement at that point. Um, it, it just seems to me that everything that he did, it was to, I don't want to say make a name for himself, but to definitely um, get people to recognize that he was there and that um, he was there to stay. So, yeah, definitely. I, I think you said that well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and of course, this appears on an album that was different for you in the States than it was for us in the UK. Slightly different track listing. You don't have the song Sunday's Best. Elvis no. saying it was considered to be too English for an American audience. Did all of Elvis's references and his irony, do you think it landed in America? Um, I think everybody over here at the time that he was becoming known, I think everybody was just listening to the music for the hook. Um, I think uh, a lot of us, it was a challenge for us to relate to where he was coming from and also who he was. Um, but I think as the years went by in his career, uh, we learned to expect um, this kind of thing from Elvis and we actually welcomed it as, as it went on. And I think America became a little more open to um, what he was doing, what he was saying in his lyrics and embraced it a little bit more. Um, I know myself immediately, I, I was hooked from the very beginning because just very much for the reason that he seemed like a, an angry young man. And I, I'm not going to say I was an angry young man, but I definitely was rest, restless and I definitely wanted to, um, I, I'd say, make a name for myself a little bit as well. Um, I tried a, a bunch of different things. I was a musician myself, played in many bands, you know, but it's, I, I just kind of watched everything that Elvis was doing and took to heart what he was doing. So I, I was in it immediately, but the rest of America, I think at first they, they liked the hook of Allison, you know, they liked the hook yeah. of uh, Red Shoes. Um, and then, you know, once MTV came around and everybody got to see what this person looks like, um, I think that's when things started changing. Um, yeah. especially with like Oliver's Army, you know, Peace, Love and Understanding. Uh, those videos were, over here at least, they were they were in heavy rotation at the time. So that, I think that's what solidified it for him here in America. Yeah. You said that you really took Elvis to heart at that phase. So if we fast forward a little bit, what did that mean to you then when you find out that he's a fan of some of your artwork and that he he acquires a piece of yours? That must have been a great thrill for you. That, uh, I've never had a panic attack in my life, but I think when I read the, the message, um, he uh, sent a private message on social media 
uh, inquiring about the painting. Wow. And um, we, my wife and I, we were with our daughter at a birthday party. And while she was playing with her friends, we were sitting at a table and that message came in. And I immediately, I showed it to my wife and I said, I think Elvis Costello's account has been hacked. <laughs> And I'm, I'm reading it, and she's like, well, what did they say? And I said, uh, he's actually asking about one of my paintings. And she's like, well, how do you know it isn't real? And I said, well, I don't. I guess I'm going to have to reply and see what's going on. But after I replied to that, and he replied to replied almost immediately, and uh, I knew from his second message that it actually was Elvis. And like I said, I've never had a panic attack, but I think that's the closest that I've ever came to having a panic attack. Um, I literally didn't know what to do. I mean, to anybody else who were to send a message saying, I'd like to inquire about a painting, I'm very professional about it. Of course, let me give you all the details you'd like. But once I found out that this is actually Elvis Costello, after everything that he had given me with his music, you know, <laughs> it just was something that I'll never forget the rest of my life. So I had to, I had to navigate that um, with a with a great deal of caution, I would say, to make sure that I didn't sound like a babbling idiot, to make sure that, uh, you know, I wasn't gushing over him. You know, I, I know that Elvis and many people who are in the, the spotlight, you know, don't really care to be gushed over. So I, I wanted to be as professional as possible. And I remember I would uh, finish a, a reply to him and I would show it to my wife to make see if there's any red flags here or no, take that yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a sense check, yeah. <laughs> so, but it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about the reason that he inquired is uh, one of the things that I do is I put music to my paintings. And when a particular song or a particular artist really connects with the work that I'm doing, um, I suggest on social media in my posts that you pair this painting with this song. Um, and one of my paintings was called um, Our Lady of the Signal. And I made a suggestion that you pair the song with Kid About It from Imperial Bedroom. Ah, right. Okay. Because that song had a very big connection with that, that piece. And so I think that's what got him to inquire in the first place. Uh, I talked a little bit about the painting, and then he replied telling me where the inspiration for the song came from, which was unbelievable. Um, I, I, I made the, that uh, message. He gave me permission to post that message, but it, it's basically about the day that we lost John Lennon and uh, what he was feeling. Uh, the song isn't particularly about uh, that incident, but it does have the mood in it that he was feeling when he wrote the song. And I think that's probably why it connected with the painting so well, because um, the, the colors that are in there, just, they're, I mean, they're, they're bright, but at the same time, they, they seem to have like a, um, a matted tone to them. And uh, it just, the, the song seeped into what I was doing. And I, I, it's, I, I try sometimes to tell people the connection that I'm, I'm talking about, but it's hard to put into words what happens when a particular song connects with the artwork that, you, that you're doing. So I, I just kind of fumble through it most of the time. But yeah, it, it had a profound impact on the painting and some people tell me when they see the painting and and i i sent it to you but uh they said that they actually see elvis in the painting and that the, the two the two uh circles the spheres that you see there um being his, his spectacles 
And yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the first time I heard that, I went back and looked, and I, I actually didn't see what they were seeing. But uh, since then, I've looked at it, and I, I think I can see why they say it looks like Elvis. But uh, I don't know. Maybe he's got it up on his wall and thinks the same. I'd love to know if he thinks it looks like him. <laughs> this is Dangerous Amusements, a podcast with a suitcase of phony wisdom to dispense. So do you listen to music while you're painting? And when you do, does the type of music you're listening to influence what you're painting? Good question. Um, When I start out on a painting, I listen to nothing. I actually sometimes will put in earplugs so I hear nothing. Uh, No distractions around me at all. And that's, that's when I start the painting. And when I feel that I've got a good base, things are going well. Uh, I'll put on a playlist that has many artists, various artists' playlists. At that point, if one of the uh, artists is really clicking with what I'm doing, I'll go from that playlist to their catalog and listen to their music. Um, And it's at that point, if, if if it happens the way I think it's going to happen, there'll be a particular song, sometimes two songs, that just, it'll make the hair on the back of my neck stand up because you just know that this song goes with this work. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's kind of a process from narrowing it down from silence to the artist that is clicking with the work. Yeah. Um, so, But it, it, it's it's a good process so far. And uh, there's been a lot of songs. And sometimes, I mean, the, the connection is so strong that you can't help but get a little emotional uh, with, with what's going on. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it just, I don't know, that's, I can't think of any other way to paint, actually. It, it, it's what works for me. And I feel at the end of the day, even though I have listened to the music, I, I feel like a part of me um, is also there along with the, the music in, in, the, in the work. Um, I feel like the, the thoughts and images that I have in my head have, have come out. And I think that's what makes the connection so strong. The landlady's husband came up to town today. Since he left them both ten years ago to serve the ministry. The Costello song from the 1980s that you've picked out for us is Battered Old Bird, recorded with the Attractions and released on Blood and Chocolate in 1986. So why this one? It's just, I mean, to me, when I listen to this song on headphones, it almost sounds like I'm sitting in the room watching them perform this song. It doesn't sound like they're in a studio or on a stage. It sounds like they are sitting around in a room playing this song. I mean, when you listen on headphones, you can almost like hear the squeaks of shoes or hear the shuffling. You can hear the tapping, him tapping on the guitar. It's just, it's very intimate and it's very close quartered. And the emotion that he puts into this is just unbelievable. Back when I didn't know what this song was about, I could have swore that this must be something that is deeply personal to him that he's singing about. And I, I, I listened to the words and I tried to think to myself, what, what happened that made him write a song like this? It, you know, and now that we're in the age that we're in, I, I Google the words and, you know, talk, listen to what other people are saying. And it's, it's a story. It's just a story that he put together. But the way that he sings it, the emotion that he puts into it, you would think that it was something that happened to him. And that's what I connect to is the emotion 
uh, with with everybody that I listen to. Um, I, I like a good hook. I like a good beat, but I've got to connect it, connect with it emotionally for it to really mean something to me. And I've listened to this song thousands and thousands of times. And every single time I listen to it, it still evokes emotion for me. Um, I think it's funny. I, I In preparation for the podcast here, I was looking up and uh, there's, there's one line that he says, uh, Elvis says that he's the tenant's boy in this story. And that yeah. uh, he says, how do you deal with it? swore in French. But yeah. what I heard in the story is that he actually was uh, taught to swear in Welsh. That's <laughs> right. But yeah. it didn't rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's funny. So. Yeah. He said uh, the characters in the song are based on real people that he knew from when his family lived in a block where they were in a flat and there were other people who lived in other, in other places in that house. So the old maids, the man in his overcoat, the guy who washes down sleeping pills with the sherry are all based on real people. Mm -hmm. It's such a vivid picture, isn't it, that he creates? You, as you say, you, you kind of inhabit it. You go into the house when you hear the song because he, he really brings those people to life, doesn't he? Yeah, he definitely does. Like the Macintosh man, I can actually hear his typewriter going yeah. all through the night. I can hear it. It It's vivid, very vivid. And it just, it, it's one of my favorite songs. It, when I was thinking, uh, what, am, what am I going to pick from the 80s? A lot of people said, uh, my friend's family, are, are you going to pick Kid about it? Because it being attached with the painting. But I I, I got to tell you, Battered Old Bird is probably one of my favorite of uh, his entire career just for that emotion the fact that i mean he almost sounds like he's gonna lose it in some spots yeah. you know like he yeah. might have to say stop stop let's take another take <laughs> yeah but it, the the emotion is overwhelming and it it paints a very vivid picture yes yeah well it's interesting musically because it I think it's taken from different performances, isn't it? Niccolo has kind of, he's edited a couple of performances together, I suppose, a bit like they put on the beginning and the end of Man Out of Time on um, Imperial Bedroom. But I think yeah. this one sounds a little bit more of the Strawberry Fields Forever thing, where you take two things in different tempos and, you know, with a bit of manipulation in the studio, you manage to bring them together as a bit of a cut and shut. But it sounds like a, a cohesive whole, doesn't it? it? And as you say, it's got that atmosphere that you get all the way through Blood and Chocolate where you feel like you're on the studio floor with the band. Yep, it does. I just think that uh, it's a standout on Blood and Chocolate for me. It, it really is. I, I love the album. It's one of my favorites. But I think most of the time when I go to this album, I, I don't listen to the tracks in order. And the first song that I go to is Battered Old Bird. Um, I just, I mean... I don't think that it could have been done better. I don't know how many, you know, when they were piecing it together, how many takes were done, but it just seems to me, it just sounds like they did it in one take um, right, right there in the studio. And it just, it has such a connection with me. I, I couldn't think of another song from the eighties that I would have chosen over this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you were talking about the lyrics of it and not knowing what it was about. I remember when I first got the record and I was listening to it, I couldn't work out what he was singing in the chorus. So, mm -hmm. you know, he's a battered old bird, something, something, something. And you know when you don't know the words and you kind of make your own up as you're <laughs> singing along to it. And then, obviously, you you get the lyric sheet, the bits that aren't in Esperanto on the on the album sleeve, and it's, he's living up there. And I, even though I now know the words, I, I kind of think, I'm, I'm sure they're not, they're not the words. They don't quite fit. <laughs> I, I've done the same thing. There's been many times I've looked up his lyrics and I'm, I'm like, really? That's what he's saying? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't think they've got it right on this website. <laughs> well, he's a bad old bird. 
Well, listen, one of the other really distinctive things about Blood and Chocolate, aside from uh, the great music, is the the artwork um, and that really distinctive painting on the sleeve by the mysterious mm-hmm. Eamon Singer, whoever he is. Um, Who is that? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Elvis knows. Uh, of course, El- <laughs> Elvis has had some really iconic album covers over the years. I just wondered, as you know, as a, a great artist and someone who has designed record covers yourself, what are some of your favorites of Elvis's over the years? Well, I, I'll, let me say right now, I, I do love Blood and Chocolate, but I just want to get it out of the way right now. And, and there's been a lot of debate about it, but Hey Clockface, uh, the artwork for Hey Clockface is just fantastic. Uh, mm. And to me, it, it very much uh, uh, gets a statement across uh, without having to be overly detailed. Um, it, it's a great album cover. I like it a lot. And uh, I mean, even the accompanying art on the singles, um, fantastic as well. And when that, when that album cover came out and uh, I was taking it in, that was the first time that I wondered if, if Elvis actually creates art in his free time. I, I mean, I can't imagine that he's got much free time to begin with, but I mean, is he also an artist? Does, does he get out in, uh, in the garage there and make, make some art when he has the time? I mean, it's, he's Blood and Chocolate is his cover as well. Um, he's obviously got a knack for it. He likes art as well. He acquires art. So I'm just wondering if he's an artist and we don't really know that much about it. Yeah. Have you heard? No. And as you say, you wonder where someone like Elvis gets the time because he seems to have listened to every record that's ever been made. So you think, how can you ever fit everything else in um, with all the, you know, the dedication he gives to his music? So yeah, who knows? But as you say, he's he's got a couple of really eye-catching pieces to his name that he's used on on album artwork as well. Um, Of course, in the early days with Stiff, they had Barney Bubbles on the scene as well, who did so much as a a great graphic designer and artist. How big a, a role do you think he had in setting Elvis's image in those early days? Oh, I, I mean, when people think of Oz, Elvis Costello, I mean, it's the early days that you think of first. I, I mean, most people, I, you think of those iconic uh, images that are on uh, My Aim is True, um, the image that's on um, this year's model. Yeah. It's, it, it, it very much set the tone. Uh, I, I think that if he had not been doing the covers, it might have been a different story. I, I mean, his music stands on its own, no doubt about that. But uh, I think that the covers definitely aided in getting him where he wanted to go. So, yeah, I think it had a profound impact on uh, his career. Uh, and I think uh, it would have been, like I said, a different story if he had gone with another artist. What I want to know, though, is, is did he approve Barney Bubbles or did uh, Jake tell him we're going to use Barney Bubbles for these covers? I, I always wondered about that. And I also also wondered um, the the cover for Armed Forces, the uh, kind of like neon pop art cover. Um, to me, that looks like a, I don't I don't know. It, it almost looks like something that Elvis wouldn't have wanted to use. And I'm wondering if that's why there was a self, second album cover. Um, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, a great cover and it's iconic. Everybody knows it immediately when you look at it, but it's sort of unlike any of his other covers. And uh, I just wondered about that, if, if uh, Jake told him we're going to use this cover or if he said, I love this cover, <laughs> let's use it. Yeah, so, yeah. Yep. 
I think one of the great marks of a, a truly iconic album cover is if you get parodies and pastiches done of it. So you think of all the people who've done their version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. And of course, for Elvis, I think the one of his is obviously this year's model that you see, particularly now if you go on social media, there are so many variations of people doing their pictures with the with the cameras as well. So that's that's so distinctive what do you think having having done some sleeves yourself what makes a good single or album sleeve oh man i think uh i think it's got to be something that catches the the viewer's attention immediately it seems to me that every single cover that i i dig is it just that it, it captures your attention uh it makes you want to look at it more um that th- i think that's the big part i think also it has to, it doesn't have to be like a literal translate translation of the music, but I mean, it does definitely have to hook with the music. Um, to me, having a cover, I mean, I, I, I'm into abstract and abstract expressionism, but having a cover that just has nothing to do with the music uh, accompanying it, I, I think that puts people off and it, it makes you wonder, you know, why, why did they choose this? So it, it definitely has to have that connection to the music. It's got to stand out immediately to capture people's attention. Uh, this year's model is just beyond iconic. Um, like you said, it, being used as many times by other artists, it, it's, it, it is one of my favorite album covers. And just for that reason, I mean, it's just a simple photograph of him standing there with the camera, but it just captures your attention immediately. I love that cover. I really do. And I'm, I'm wondering... Um, who had the idea to do that? Did was it Elvis to, that had? Uh, I mean, I mean, he's obviously got an artistic uh, touch to what he's doing. So I'm wondering if it was his idea or if um, it was Barney's idea to uh, put him behind the camera like that. Yeah. But I, a good story about a uh, spike, which is also one of my favorite album covers. Um, I think you might have heard the story as well, but I was reading that uh, that there's no trick photography in that album cover that uh, when they were at the photo session, he's actually in grease paint sticking his face uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> through, through that coat of arms there. And um, I guess there's a video out um, him doing kind of like a, a little bit of a stand-up shtick uh, while mm. he's got his head through the hole there. <laughs> I, I would, I would love to see that, but um, that that's another iconic cover. It really is. Um I think that was Brian, Brian, somebody was a photographer for that. Um, that, that was just great. It really was. It, immediately, as soon as you pick that album up out of the rack and you look at it, you're like, what's this? And you just start looking at everything that's going on in that album cover. I mean, you, you notice, notice his whiskers that are just like soaked in grease paint. Um, notice the, the expression he's got on his face, how his head is cocked. It's just, it's, it's a great album cover. I love yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. Back to the songs that you've added to our playlist for us. Uh, and the playlist, by the way, is on Spotify and it's called Drag in the Lake and it's got all the songs that have been chosen by my guests on this season of the podcast. And your 90s choice comes from All This Useless Beauty. That's correct. Uh, it's time.
once again, I feel that this song is a, a standout on the album. Great album, but immediately um, your your attention just peaks when you when you hear that song. Um, the beginning of it with the the drum loops. I always wondered if I, I know those are drum loops, but I always wondered if it was uh, that Pete that did the drum loops and then they they just processed them, or if they just used stock drum uh, drum loops from somewhere. But yeah. I mean, immediately when you hear that, you you are listening to what's going on, and then when the band comes in. Yeah, it's a it's a payoff. This is it's just a really good song. Um, I think that it might have been a maybe like a precursor to what was coming on in his career. Um, it, it seems to me like um, we might have heard a little bit in that song what is coming up with "Wise Up Ghost." Um, but to me, I mean, there's a couple other songs that have a similar feel to them. Um, Earlier in his career, I think Pills and Pills and Soap kind of has that mechanical kind of feel a little bit at the beginning yeah. as well, but not, not like it's time. That one is like it just it came out of nowhere. It really did, and it's surprising to me. I, I really I'm, there's no video that was ever made of that. Um, I, I can't think of any time that I saw him after that release of that album that he actually performed that song live. Um, there's really no performances of that song. And, and I think it was like one of the first singles uh, to come off of that album. And so it's surprising that he he did such a standalone track and then never really thought about it again. So, but it, it's, it's, it's great. It, I, I mean, it's number one on my Costello um, playlist that I have that I listen to in the garage. Number one right, song. Okay. Really? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, interestingly, as you say, it's got a distinctive sound. Apparently started life as a ballad before they rework it in the studio into the version that we get. Released in May 96 on the album and the final album, of course, credited to Elvis and the Attractions. And mm -hmm. I know when Dame Angela Eagle was on, she talked about this track as well. And she talked about the the political message that she detected in there. And I think that's right. And Elvis himself had described it in a strange way as the sequel to Tramp the Dirt Down. But I also wonder if there's a pointed reference to a musician who he was playing with for the final time on that record. Um, mm. Our brief acquaintance was such a mistake. You know, could he be referring to a reacquaintance uh, in that line, possibly? Who will I have left to hate after you've gone? I mean, we, we love trying to interpret Elvis's lyrics, of course, but um, he did say at one point, I felt that some of the songs had been played through gritted teeth by at least one member of the band. So, yeah, you kind of wonder what he's hinting at with, with some of those lines, don't you? Oh, definitely, without a doubt. That and um, there's a... Um... Uh, this magic moment uh, concludes when the cigarette ends. Yeah, there's a an old '60s song. Is it the Drifters? Um, this magic moment. You remember that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that song, "This Magic Moment," starts with a kiss, and I'm wondering if if that was a, a reference to that song when he says, "This magic moment concludes when the cigarette ends." Um, yeah. I, I always wondered about that, but yeah, uh, I mean. I thought about that as well. There, you know, his uh, references to, you know, past uh, musicians, um, <laughs> definitely. So 
He'd made a reference in an interview with Mojo in 1996 that he said he thinks about Casey and the Sunshine Band when he sings that song as well. He said, I love those guys and all that Miami music. I wanted it to sound like a nightmare in a disco, a nightmare in Munich, which if I hadn't seen that written down in black and white, I would never have imagined Elvis saying about that track. That's fantastic. I, I haven't heard that, but that's that's very cool. I, and it, it, exactly the atmosphere that I get for the song as well. I kind of uh, see Elvis and the band on stage. Um, you look out into the uh, the lounge or out into the club, and it's probably only half full. It's very dark out there. Uh, nobody's really paying attention to the to the band. It just has an eerie atmosphere to it, and uh, I, I've always envisioned that when I when I hear that song that. He's pretty much just uh, the band is playing for themselves at this club, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're recording this just uh, what a couple of weeks after the twenty fifth anniversary of all this useless beauty as well. And there's a there's a good little piece on under the radar, which marks the anniversary of the album. That anyone listening in, that's I think worth taking a few minutes to read because um, I could say this about lots of albums, but this is a particular <laughs> favorite of mine. All this useless beauty. Um, it's a great album. Yeah. I think what sucked me in uh, to begin with with the album was uh, Other End of the Telescope. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that song, when I the first time I heard it, it had that emotional connection that I've been talking about. Uh, it, and it was a perfect uh, gateway song to the rest of the album. Uh, and then when I came to this time, I just I was just floored by that song. And, yeah. uh, once again, he's singing that with quite a bit of emotion. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it just, it connected with me immediately. And now every time I put that album on, that's the first song that I listen to. So. Uh. Well, if we move into the new century, the song that you picked from the 2000s comes from the delivery man in 2004 and you went for either side of the same town. The emotion of that song is what's going to bring everybody in. Uh, it's it's not the it's not the hook. It's not the tempo. It's it's the emotion in the way that he is singing that song. And like all of my choices that I had before this one, uh, the emotion is is what um, brought me in as well. Uh, it put me in a situation where I remembered uh, things that have happened in my past. Uh, it brought those memories back. Makes you think about them for a while. Um, and you, you can't help, but to, for me anyway, but to put that song on repeat and listen to it because it's invoking, uh, so many memories. Um, I, I think, I don't know if this is also a story that, um, a fictitious story that Elvis has put together, or if he is singing from experiences of his own, uh, but they're very relatable, very relatable. Yeah. And it's interesting that the origins of the song, given that it packs such an emotional punch, it, it seems to be one that was kind of written to order because it was uh, written for Howard Tate for his album Rediscovered in 2003. And Tate says that 
he was introduced on stage at the San Francisco Bay Blues Festival by Elvis. And afterwards he said, Elvis, would you write me a song just like that? Because I knew he was a great writer. And Elvis says, soon as I get home, Howard, I'm going to write it for you. So you think to be able to just kind of do it and to make it such a great song, you would you would think that the, the emotion-packing songs are ones that you're driven to write by your own muse. Um, so it's fascinating that he's such a great writer that he can do it in this way as well. And yes, and what I was I was always fascinated by is when Elvis has another artist in mind to write a song for them, how he can connect with who they are, uh, what they're about, and tailor that song for them. Um, I mean, like you, when you listen to the songs on All This Useless Beauty, other songs that he's done for other artists, it sounds like one of their songs. It doesn't sound like Costello writing a song for that artist. It sounds like that artist's song. That's what always fascinated me about his songwriting talent is the the ability to do that, to just connect to that artist. And then, like you said, as soon as I get home, I mean, not only is he connected with this artist, but he can go home and, you know, write a song before he kicks off his shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, we've had a lot of love for the delivery man on the podcast. I know quite a few of my guests have picked songs from this record, which I'm pleased about because I really, really like the delivery man. Um, you mentioned seeing him on that tour. Is this uh, a particular favorite of yours among his LPs? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I, I remember going to see that show here in Portland. Uh, I mean, I, I loved all of the songs that he was doing, but I remember specifically because this was the new album waiting for him to do that song and it was later in the set and i just remember thinking he's not going to do it he's not going to do it <laughs> but towards the end of the set it wasn't one of the encores towards the end of the set he did play that song and it was unbelievable i was just transfixed and i i watched him the entire time that he was singing that and you the range of emotions that were on his face it didn't look like somebody playing a song that they played a thousand times he actually was in the mood of that song and you could watch it on his face as he was singing and that ever since i saw that performance the song is meant even more to me for that reason um the him getting out there and able to connect with all of his songs even songs that he's played like since the beginning of his career and still play them uh with a connection that's just incredible not just going through the motions but connect really connecting with the songs so so, and that's why you got to get close to the stage when you go to see Elvis, so you can see what he's doing and what he's feeling. So, the final song that you've added to the playlist that had to come from between 2010 and the present day, and you've gone for a track from 2020's "Hey Clockface." She looked at the pictures on a newspaper band. It was taped to the window to keep out the wind. To keep out the rain To keep out the nonsense And block out the needing To keep up her spirits With improving reading But the ink from the columns Dissolved down into the stain And the bare wood floor That extended to the door Newspaper paint, yes. Um, love this song. Um, some of the lyrics that I connect with immediately um, there's lyrics right here that says, and the child I'll be raising may have his blue eyes. What if he grows up and dies on some distant, unnameable hillside or field? Um, that, the lyrics, 
just immediately. I mean, the first time that I heard this song, that was what connect, connected to me right off of the bat was just that verse right there. Um, not saying that I, I have a you know similar memory or anything, but it just it was just like a dagger. It just it comes out of nowhere in this song, and that was the the verse that made me want to hear the rest of the song and try to figure out what he's talking about. But he sings it with with a uh, strength, just real strength. Um, oh yeah, just I mean, also this song just makes me really want to uh, um, go back and check out. It's kind of like a gateway song I was saying before, but go back and check out Wise Up Ghost. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same. Yeah, yeah. Had a lot of similarities. And when I listened to this, the song really pulled me in. And I'm like, I need to check out Wise Up Ghost more and see what I'm missing here. And I'm glad yeah. that I, I, I did because especially the last few months, uh, that's become one of my favorite Costello records. Um, right. But in, in Newspaper Pain, I, I'm not taking away from the song, this song itself, great song and I love it and everything, but yeah, it definitely was a gateway to Wise Up Ghost. So yeah, he, he doesn't really play on this record though, does he? He, he just kind of like phones in the lyrics from, from what I, I can gather. I mean, did he, did he give the musicians the music and uh, they took it from there or did he let them develop the music and then he just put the words to it? Those well, are the kind of things that I wonder. <laughs> yeah. The musical track recorded in New York by Michael Lenhart and Bill Frizzell, who, we know from previous recordings with Elvis, and then Elvis does the vocals separately and the writing credits go to the three of them. But he did talk, didn't he, around Hey Clockface about enjoying working with musicians who could be creative on his track. So so maybe they brought their own thing to it. And I, I totally agree about the Wise Up Ghost reference because this track, there are just, for me, little echoes of Viceroy's row on this one, particularly when the horn arrangement oh, yeah. comes in all the way through. Yeah. As you say, that's not to take away from it as a track in its own right. It's a great song on its own. But, yeah, it just slightly takes me back to that one as well. Mm -hmm. Do you wonder now, uh, as he moves forward, are we going to hear more of this style? Or do you think it's something he's dabbled with and he's on to the next? Yeah, who know? You can't second guess Elvis, yeah. can you? You don't know, don't know what he's going to do from uh, from one record to the other. I mean, we're what are we waiting on now as we sit recording this? A Spanish language version of this year's model, and we're coming up to Record Store Day in the UK as well, where we're going to get some more of the French language re-recordings as well. Yeah. So, yeah, who knows what he's got up his sleeve next? <laughs> what do you think of the, that French language uh, with uh, Iggy? Iggy is great. I love that. It really yeah. took me by surprise when I clicked on that track and, and listened to it. I, I, you know, once again with Elvis, you never know what to expect, but I was, I was kind of surprised by it and I love it. I was going to say, I think if you can take your listeners by surprise 40 odd years into your career, then that says everything about what a creative artist he is, doesn't it? It definitely does. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I I'm really curious what's going to happen next in his career. Um, once now things are opening back up, uh, he's probably able to get back with, uh, you know, some of, uh, his bandmates and the other musicians. I just think that it's wide open. It's wide open now is what, what the next albums are going to be. So, and I know that probably like everybody, he's dying to get back at it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think he's still got a few gigs to rearrange from the UK portion of the tour from last time yeah. as well. So there are people who've still got ticket stubs thinking, when will, when will we get a chance to go to this show? Uh, when, uh, is, uh, when will we get um, Elvis back over here in the States for a tour as well? I think yeah. that we still have a long time for that, actually. Yeah. 
Well, he owed us because you got the um, you got the Imperial Bedroom Review Tour, which we didn't get over here. So we we yeah. were owed one, I think, on our side. <laughs> <laughs> he he is fair, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other um, the other bit of the lyric, particularly on newspaper pain, that um, stuck out for me was a bent note on a horn I can't play. The ghosts in the window that I can't wish away. And he goes on to that little riff around freedom to be reckless, freedom to plunder, freedom to dream and freedom to wonder. I just think mm. such a such a good lyric. And the ghosts in the window and the bent note on the horn, he just he has such a knack of coming up with a, an image that sticks in your brain. Yeah. And I think uh, I think it's the way the way that he delivers the lyrics too. It has a cadence to it. Um it it's very, it's very pronounced and it's very strong. And I think that it really adds to the lyrics. I think if uh, the lyrics had been sung with a a little less force, um, it wouldn't have had the impact that it does. It, and it it's really, really incredible to see somebody who who can croon, you know, the way he does, and then turn around and, and deliver such a, a forceful, mechanical type of lyric, uh, vocal performance. Um, and it, it just, it really makes the music and makes the words stand out. Yeah. Hey, Scott, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks very much for picking those songs out for us and for giving up your time and coming on to chat with us. This was a lot of fun. I thank you very much for having me. I look forward to hearing uh, your future episodes. All of your guests are always well-informed and a pleasure to listen to. So wishing you the best. Thank you to Scott. Make sure you follow him on Twitter and Instagram where you can see his artwork. He's on there as W.S. Cranmore. You can find Dangerous Amusements on there too, and our Dragging the Lake playlist is on Spotify. Our theme music is performed by Gary Mulcahy. This was Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that seemed like a fine idea at the time.